Hey everybody, it's Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, uh, and you can pick up copies of that wherever books are sold. Um, And this podcast is sort of the natural extension of that book, where Common Sense Pregnancy focuses on the prenatal care, birth, and new parenthood experience. Um, Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting looks at it a little harder, and we take into account all the different facets that go into making or breaking your parenthood experience. And, you know, some of that is healthcare, and some of that is our culture, and some of it has to do with politics, and some of it has to do with education and nutrition. And, you know, just there's so many things that go into this thing we call parenthood. And that's what I like to talk about. So how's your week been? I have had a hard working week. I've been working every day this week. Um, I barely looked up. I'm working on some really interesting projects for some clients that I just really admire. Um, and it's been great, great work. But whew, there's, there hasn't been a whole lot of time for much else. So, you know, today, rather than doing too much else, I kind of just feel like hopping on the phone with my friend Chris um, and talking about stuff on Facebook. So I think that's what we're going to do today. Next week, we'll, you know, maybe read some listener emails or talk more about current events. But for now, I think we'll just get Chris on the line. Hello. Hi, Chris. It's Jeannie. How are you? Hey, Jeannie. I'm good. How about you? I'm doing okay, too, except for I've got this froggy voice and a cold, but whatever. We're, we're hanging in there. It's been a dreary winter. Yeah, but didn't you just travel? Weren't you somewhere fabulous? I did. I just was in Hawaii. Oh, my God. You're the smartest Portlander I know. Oh, I think I belong to a club. There's a <laughs> lot of us who are smart. Who get the heck out of Dodge during this dreary, rainy, damp, funky month. Yeah, January or February, best time to escape. Oh, darn right. I was grateful just to go to, you know, D.C. and New York in January. It was similar weather to we, that we have here, but it was just, it wasn't Portland dreary. It was, you know, different. East Coast different. Yeah, yeah. And I always think, you know, go someplace fabulous in February because I get so gloomy. I am such an Eeyore. It's awful. Awful. I think all it takes is like three days of sun to just replenish your spirits and your vitamin D and yeah. then you're good to go. So you could even just hop over the mountains. I know I could. Oh, that's such a good idea. Maybe I'll do that this weekend. Yeah. And we're getting about 15 seconds of sun right now. So I'll just, you know, soak it all in. Get on out <laughs> there on your porch. <laughs> well, um, you have been on the pod a few times now. And every time we have such fun conversations and people just love it. And I think that the last time we talked was back in December and it was before the inauguration. Um, I think it was episode 58, Politics and Midwives. And that's kind of a telling title that, you know, in a nutshell says who you are. But, you know, I like to start off every episode with the big question of who are you and what do you do? 
Well, I am a nurse midwife, and I work for Kaiser Permanente here in the Portland, Oregon area. Mm-hmm. I am a mother of two daughters, mm-hmm. and I am a, um, uh, what's the right word? It's not prolific. I am a, um, a frequent camper, traveler, escaper, adventurer. I love that about you. I love that. Actually, I find it really inspiring. I, you know, will do more and more on my own going out camping. I love it. It's a great escape. Yeah. And I think we've talked before on the podcast about how you have, what do you call it? It's the VW van. We used to call it a bread loaf. I have a Westphalia Volkswagen Vanagon. And you have the lifestyle to go with it. I'm so jealous of you. (laughs) <laughs> and I've I've prioritized that. You know, I've made sacrifices in other arenas in order to be able to do that. So yeah. I feel lucky that I'm able to create that balance for myself. Yeah, we need it, man. We need it. We need some balance. So the other thing that you are totally passionate about, as am I, is politics. And it seems like all I talk about on the podcast these days is the intersections between you know, women's lives, women's issues, politics, feminism. And I like to sometimes give my listeners a little break from that side of things. But, you know, it always seems like we're just two touch points away from it. Um, But what I wanted to talk to you about today is that in addition to all of the really, really good Facebook posts that you do daily about the current political climate we're facing, you also drop in the occasional uh, post that relates directly to your work as a midwife. And so I wanted to talk about a couple of those. Um, sure. Really recently, I think it was this week or maybe last week, you posted, My awesome midwifery practice welcomed 2,675 new Oregonians in 2016. We attended 70% of Kaiser births in the Portland metro area. Our C-section rate is 8.6% and our VBAC success rate is 80%. Extremely proud of the work we do day and night and the exceptional care we provide for moms and babies. Woohoo! I know. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. It, it is, is amazing. amazing. But it's amazing for a lot of different reasons. Um. 2,675 births is kind of a lot for one health system, I think. I mean, Portland isn't huge, but we're pretty big. And, you know, that that constitutes how many healthcare facilities? Well, um, those statistics came from our two Portland facilities, Kaiser Sunnyside Medical Center and Kaiser Westside Medical Center. Mm-hmm. We also have two other facilities that do births, but they don't have midwifery practices mm-hmm. because their volume is not quite as high. Mm-hmm. Um, our northern, uh, the Vancouver um, OBGYN group does births at Salmon Creek Hospital and the mm-hmm. Salem OBGYN group does births at Salem Hospital, but those comprise you know, probably less than 2000 births, but it's, you know, Kaiser is a big system and we do, we do a lot of obstetrical care. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think in the Portland area, um, people who are looking for insurance seek out places where they can get the kind of obstetrical care that they're wanting. And I am really proud to say that I think we provide exceptional obstetrical care. 
our team. Yeah. I don't know that Kaiser always had the reputation that it does now, but um, I attended a birth in a Los Angeles Kaiser facility uh, a little over a year ago, and um, there were midwives on staff, but we went into the situation thinking we were going to be lucky to get them on the night that, um, you know, our uh, my niece's baby was born, um, but Dang, I was so impressed with the service that they provided her. And it didn't always have that reputation. It used to be a much um, fewer midwives, more obstetricians, and a lot more heavy-handed with, you know, with interventions and C-sections. That's possibly true. You know, I've worked for Kaiser um, Basically, for the last 20 years, April will be my 20-year anniversary. Uh Um, And in the early years, I was an on-call person, and I didn't work that much, but I did work in the system. Um, And I think, you know, obstetrical care has changed a lot in those 20 years. But certainly in the last five to 10 years, there's there's been a big shift in how Kaiser provides maternity care. And at least in our setting, Mm -hmm. and pop, and probably in many other health systems, it's not just us. And, you know, the, the research is really showing that the most effective team on labor and delivery is a obstetrician hospitalist and a nurse midwife and an exceptional nursing staff. That's how you get your best outcomes. And that's the recipe. Yeah. And I've attended multiple conferences and they're all kind of pointing to this, you know, people all over the nation are scrambling to create this, um, uh, delivery model for in the hospital, obstet- hospitalist obstetrician. Those used to be, you know, rarer than hen's teeth. No I one know. had a hospitalist. You just had all these private practice guys and gals who came in. And, um, you know, so Kaiser has been a team model for years. And to, to know that we have all along been doing the right thing is great. You know, I, um, have been doing a lot of research into midwifery practices in New York, New York State, and New York City lately. And most of the big city hospitals in New York, in Manhattan, they don't even have midwives on staff. I know it's very, um, it's really unfortunate that some of, um, some environments, it's very hard for midwives to get in the door and gain traction. Yeah. Um, we always say that the coasts are kind of saturated with midwives and then the American Southwest and then in between it's kind of hit or miss. Right. And depending on the state that you're in, some states have laws that promote midwifery care and ease of midwifery practices functioning. Um, and other states have more restrictive laws. I'm not really familiar with New York law. Right. But in Oregon... Nurse practitioners and nurse midwives are independent, excuse me, but I'm going to start over. Nurse midwives are independent practitioners. And if you um, are a hospital in the state of Oregon, midwives are independent practitioners within your walls. So, Which means that you don't have to practice under an obstetrician's license. Correct. You got your own damn license and your own skill set and your own expertise and correct. you do it yourself. Yep. Yes. Yep. And interestingly enough, you know, Oregon is the first state in the nation to um, pass that law. And Kaiser, this is one place where the Old Boys Network really shows its um, colors, 
is that Kaiser had, um, even though even though nurse midwives are independent practitioners in the state of Oregon, until they passed the law that said, you know, hospitals had to grant us independent admitting privileges, mm-hmm. Kaiser had had us in a supervisory role. So even though the state of Oregon says we're independent, Kaiser had always said, oh, no, you're not. Yeah. And they actually had to change the bylaws of our hospital to comply with the Oregon law. That's pretty remarkable. And it's I like pretty remarkable. Yeah. And, you know, I talked to so many people about how much resistance there is to changing this dynamic. And, um, you know, it's it's tough. Oregon is definitely a leader and I'm proud to be part of part of this. But, you know, part of I, I'm not like I'm part of this, but I'm proud to be in a state that is coming down on the right side of history. Um, but, you know, that is a culture dynamic. That's a that's a challenge that is one we really have to take on in parts of the country that are less liberal and less um, forward focused. Well, I'm sure you're aware that there is a looming crisis in obstetrical care providers. And Especially we're have, in, in rural areas. Yes, we're going to have large swaths of the U.S. where people are, are going to have to travel multiple hours to get obstetrical care. Right. And, um, you know, we have to be creative in how we manage that. And the solution is training more nurse midwives as well as training more OBGYNs. Right. I think that part of that training has to be that they need to train together. They need to go through a certain amount of their medical training and education together because right now in many parts of the country the difference between midwives and obstetricians are it's polarizing and I, and a lot of that i think comes from um they haven't been on any kind of equal footing in the training process well it's interesting that you should bring that up because um Kaiser nurse midwives who work at the Kaiser Westside Medical Center are the teachers of the obstetrical residents from OHSU. So the OBGYN residents from OHSU spend their first two years under the wings of the Kaiser nurse midwives for their Kaiser rotation. Wow, that is changing things on a lot of different levels. It is. And I feel like um, those midwives who work in that setting are educating the obstetricians of the future. Yeah. And they and and really my bias and it's probably your bias too is that nurse midwives are the experts at normal birth. Yep. So the experts at normal birth should be helping our physician colleagues learn about normal birth right. from the time they're baby doctors. Right. And I think that um you know I've been around Kaiser long enough to to be in the position where some of the folks who were residents with my midwife colleagues are now signing on to Kaiser as doctors. And so they're becoming my physician colleagues. Mm -hmm. So they were baby doctors with the midwives on the other side of town. And now they're doctors in my setting. And you can, you can see the difference when they come between physicians who've trained with midwives and are comfortable and those who've trained in settings where there aren't midwives and it takes them, you know, weeks or months, hopefully not more than months to acclimatize to the culture. They need to learn to relax and exhale and wait. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They need to be patient. To, they need to sit on their hands and take a deep breath and have another cup of tea. Yeah. And yeah. and in and in large part they have to put aside a huge chunk of the skills that they were educated and trained in and not use them. I think that's hard for a lot of a lot of people. Yeah, especially I bet if you're still paying off your student loans. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the you know the competition that develops when um when midwives and OBGYNs don't work together as youngsters, I mm-hmm. think is something that would be great to um, work to do away with because we do have this looming crisis. I mean, we have multiple crises in maternity care, as you know. Yeah. We have a crazy high C-section rate in large parts of the country. Mm-hmm. We have Texas, which their maternal mortality rate has doubled mm-hmm. in the last two years. Yep. And then we have... Um, you know, this looming shortage. So there's, it's, it's hard to know where to, where to put your energy, but we also um, have the, you know, a lot of uncertainty about how, uh, we're going to pay for healthcare, how those of us who are dependent on, you know, it's the health insurance crisis over and over and over again. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, it's multifactorial. We have to take some pretty um, unique and strategic approaches. Yeah. Which kind of brings me back around to that post we were just talking about. So how is it that you managed to have a C-section rate of only 8.6% and a VBAC success rate of 80%? Well, in the Kaiser facilities and in the Kaiser world, if you're a low-risk patient, you get the midwife for your obstetrical care in the hospital. Mm -hmm. If you're a high-risk patient, you get the physician. Mm -hmm. So in general, the low-risk patients are being cared for by the midwives. So while Kaiser's Kaiser's primary C-section rate overall is around 20 to 22%, because that includes... still super low. It's still super low. That includes patients who are breech, patients who've had a previous... um, um, a, a uterine surgery and all the other reasons that people get primary C-sections when they're high risk patients, mm-hmm. placenta previa, mm-hmm. yada, yada, yada. Yeah. For our patients, you know, the midwives are managing the normal labors. So we are doing all the things that midwives have always done, which is keep people moving in labor. Don't admit people until they're in active labor. Um, patients mm-hmm. and we, our physician colleagues, are also equally patient. If I worked in a setting where the physician was going to go home at 5 o'clock to, for, to dinner with his family, mm-hmm. I would probably be, uh, my C-section rate would be higher than that. Because whenever there's a time limit on, I, the physician has to go home, so we better do that surgery right now. Yeah. Then I think patients don't get the best care. They don't get patient care. Yeah. But, you know, our physician colleagues have learned from us or learned from the research, one or the other or both, that, you know, late normal labor takes time and it and you have to be patient. And what we always believed about labor was based on these studies in Ireland in the nineteen fifties, Friedman. We mm-hmm. all learned about Friedman's curve. Mm-hmm. And when they redid those studies recently, like within the last five to ten years, they discovered that the labor curve has changed. So let's. Or else the first. A lot study of people don't know what that means. A lot of people don't know what a Friedman curve is. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, 
I can't remember Friedman's first name, but he did the study in Ireland that basically said active labor started when you were four centimeters dilated and you should change one centimeter every hour. And if you didn't, get out the knife. Yeah. Basically. You fell off the curve. You're you abnormal. Fell the... You failed. Yeah. And you need to have a C-section. Right. And we'll fix it. Ugh. Right. <laughs> and so the current belief, the new belief is that active labor doesn't actually start until you're six centimeters. And I don't remember what the math, the math is. I think it's 1.5 centimeters per hour. Mm-hmm. So the math that we use to say, yes, you're doing fine or no, you're abnormal has changed. And so just because of that, we're more patient with women when they're in labor. Isn't it astounding that we need equate math equations to prescribe patients? <laughs> you know, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of mind numbing how, uh, you know, it's just so frustrating because this this brings us to you know, the latest ACOG guidelines that they released on January 25th. Um, saying approaches for OBGYNs and maternity care providers to limit intervention during labor and birth and low-risk pregnancies, to which all my midwife friends said, duh, this is making huge headlines now because it's the new ACOG guidelines. This is how we work. This is what we have for lunch. Exactly. And I, I mean, I'll take it one step further and say, if the good old white boys say that it's so, then it's so. Yep. That's kind of what it feels like. I bet it does. I bet it does. So I'm going to just read a little bit from the guidelines, and then let's talk about it just a little bit, okay? Sure. Um, They released this on their website, and ACOG is American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. It's ACOG is the OBGYN's professional network or organization. Um, and they, their press release says, for low-risk pregnancies, obstetrician gynecologists and other maternity care providers should consider labor and delivery approaches that facilitate limited medical intervention. Later on, they say, it generally involves a clinical scenario in which a woman presents at term in spontaneous labor and has had an uncomplicated course of prenatal care. For such women in the early stages of labor with reassuring maternal and fetal status, patients and providers may consider delayed hospital admission until approximately five to six centimeters dilated. Also, for women who are progressing normally and do not require internal fetal monitoring, it may not be necessary to rupture the amniotic sac. Oh, sorry, I think a little bit of sarcasm is leaking in here. I'm going to try to read this without it. In the case where a woman at term experiences premature rupture of membranes, patients and providers may consider planning a short period of expectant management before undertaking labor induction if there are no maternal or fetal reasons to expedite delivery. Oh, there's a whole lot more. And they talk about, you know, anesthesia and pain management techniques and the value of doulas and um, continuous labor support you know, the whole enchilada of what is on a midwife's to-do list. They're basically describing midwifery care. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. (laughs) They're describing midwifery care to a T. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, one of the challenges in working in a medical environment is, um, you know, there's a little bit of a food chain issue. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say that the midwives aren't exactly on the same footing as the physicians. No, and, they're not. Um, you know, the physician, I think, very often thinks that the buck stops with them and that they are the captain of the ship, driver of the bus, whatever euphemism you want to use. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, sometimes when there are management discussions, like should you rupture this person's membranes or not, the physician kind of rules. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges, for me at least, um, in being in a, in a collaborative environment is really standing tall for those midf- midwifery values. We, yeah. She's progressing. We don't need to rupture her membranes. And, you know, in the old days or, you know, in the past, I would hear someone say, well, what if she's got meconium? got to know that she's got meconium so you can get the nursery team here. And, you know, my response is, hey, I got a button on the wall. Yeah. I can get the nursery team here. I don't need to know what color her fluid is. Right. Not to mention that we've changed the way we manage meconium too. But, um, you know, I think that the challenge for physicians and the challenge for midwives who work together is standing up for midwifery support and values when that's appropriate and acquiescing to medical intervention when that's appropriate. I mean, it's kind of a dance because there it are is. women, there are women who need that intervention. And I think the um, the gift of the midwife is we know when something is normal. Yeah, that is our purview. That is our expertise. So when something is not normal, you know it. And you step in and intervene. You know, somebody that I was talking to recently said that the only way that you can get a second opinion in the maternal health care setting in the in the maternity unit is if you have started with a midwife. Because if your midwife says something's wrong here, then you automatically get a second opinion of an obstetrician. If you are using an obstetrician for all your care, you don't get a second opinion. That's the end of the road. You don't get the option of saying, yeah, I hear you say I need, you know, my membranes ruptured or I need a C-section, but I'd rather talk to a midwife about it. It doesn't happen. It's interesting because occasionally in our setting, you know, the midwives do co-manage folks who have higher risk situations like um, high blood pressure requiring medications, um, insulin-dependent diabetes, and occasionally someone will want a midwife to help with their twin birth. Mm -hmm. But um, sometimes those patients that need physician care really want midwifery care. So even though the physicians are caring for them, they'll call and say, would you mind coming and talking to the person in room six? She really doesn't want to proceed with a C-section. And I think that's what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And she needs to hear it from a midwife. Well, I think you guys are really unique. I think you're, we you're are. standing on the cutting edge. That's not the way it is in most hospitals in America. And it's great. And another thing that was, you know, you were talking about the dance and the food chain. Um, I, I, the third major player in the care team is the nurse at the bedside. And oh, she has way less power and authority Um you know, than a midwife or an obstetrician. And so that requires a whole other bunch of, you know, gumption to be able to stand up and say, "Uh uh-uh, she's fine. 
Right. And the interesting thing is that our, you know, our organization undertook this training probably about five years ago into becoming a highly reliable organization, which basically means anybody on the team has the authority, the, the permission to speak up if they see something that's not Mm -hmm. right. And so we actually have a safety phrase. Permission is one thing, you know, there's backlash though. I suppose in some letting some settings there is backlash, but I think um, you know the nurse is the person at the bedside. Yeah, she's the person who knows if those vital signs have deteriorated and things are going bad fast, and you need to come in. She's here. the first one who knows. She's the first one who knows, and quite frankly, you know, many nurses who've been nurses for years and years and years are way better clinicians than the people who are called clinicians. Mm-hmm. And, you know, any any smart young doctor knows that it's the nurse who's going to save them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And going to teach them. Yeah. Some of them are, it takes them a while to get that smart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True. It depends true. on just how, um, I don't know. That's a whole it other. It depends on the culture of where they, where they were grown up as doctors. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's about the culture and and don't don't you think Portland? I mean, I'm I'm talking a lot about Kaiser because that's where I currently mm-hmm. work. But you know, don't you think Portland, as in general, is very progressive? I do absolutely. We're in, we are absolutely in a bubble, or you know, yeah. to put it in a better way, we're at the cutting edge. Yeah, of the country, of the birth community in America, we do really well here. We yeah. do. Yeah. Well. I'm going to wrap it back around to our common passion of advocacy and activism, especially during our current political climate, Um, because you posted something a little while back called the Nurse Manifest Declaration of Resistance. And that too, I'm not going to um, read the whole thing, but I want to lead into it and then I'll make sure people can get to it. Uh, at the, you know, we'll, we'll put up the website at the end of the podcast. You posted, nurses are one of the most trusted professions in America. And just as a side note here, midwives are nurses. Um, okay, you wrote, nurses are one of the most trusted professions in America. We see and care for people in the best and worst times of their lives. We have an intimate view of what it is to be human. We sit with people, we cry with people, we laugh with people, and yes, we stand with people. Nurses are joining others in joining the resistance against the current administration. Um, And you said, I'm proud to read this statement today. And a little bit of the Nurse Manifest statement is, the 2017 U.S. Executive Branch and the Congress are taking steps that will have an effect on the health and well-being of all who reside within the borders of the United States and of all people worldwide. At this moment in history, we call upon nurses to stand together, act to resist that which harms health and well-being, protect those who are harmed, and build coalitions that move toward the ideals we seek. We stand on a long legacy of political activism by nurses that arises from our moral imperative in active to actively promote public policy that assures social health equity. Our actions are grounded in the premise that health and well-being depends on healthy environments and just communities. 
we pledge to join with others to engage in determined action to protect health and justice for all, regardless of age, social economic circumstance, religion, skin color, race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. And I'll make sure anybody that's listening who wants to learn more about that, um, we'll, we'll provide the, the uh, website at the end. So oh, how do we talk about this? Well, it's hard to talk about. Yeah. It's hard to it's talk so about. It's so true, though. I mean, whatever, whatever part of whatever type of nurse you are, whatever you know, room in the hospital you're in or clinic or, you know, rural outpost health facility. We see people where they are. I mean, they come to us on the worst and best days of their lives. All people, everyone. And if you're a nurse, part of it is because you have the ability to um, to reach somebody uh, immediately and get them to trust you enough so that we can take care of them. And it's an honored position. It's a special one. Not all the nurses out there have that skill, but most do. Um, and that's why we're, you know, the most, one of the most trusted professions in America. This is a pretty, pretty strong statement. And I know that not every nurse that's listening to us today um, agrees that we're up against some really, really big challenges. There are some who think, finally, you know, the health care that they envision for America may come into play. That is not how I think about it. Um, yeah. Well, it's not how I think about it either. Yeah. As a nurse and as a parent. Right. And... um you know, I think the thing that struck me about that statement and that, that called me to post it on my Facebook page was that I believe that many groups of people, you know, universities are saying, are standing up for the things that they believe in. Um, other professions, teachers are standing up for what they believe in. And I think that, you know, we're citizens. Yeah. And as citizens, we have a big responsibility. Um and I believe that nurses, because we have this unique position in our culture to see people on, at their best and at their worst, we can see what, what, these, um, what the effect of these policies that are being, you know, really basically shoved down our throats are going to have on our fellow man and our fellow citizens. Yeah. And I think some people who are kind of in their own little silo, you know, going to work, working at the grocery store, checking the bags, or, you know, going to work at, you know, whatever job they work at, they don't have quite the same exposure to the breadth of our citizens, Right. if that makes sense. It does. And I also think that for many of our policymakers and government leaders who are creating new policy uh, like I've never seen before in this first month with the new administration. For them, the issues that they're talking about are bullet points. For us, you know, it's what we're going to do all day when we go to work. And it's going to, it's 
how we're going to do our jobs. And it's going to be how the people that we take care of live their lives. And, you know, basically that's what all health and well-being comes down to is how you live your life. That's what it is, you know? And people who don't have access to good health care have really tough lives. Yeah, yeah they do. My, and I have a daughter who um, has just been sick with a cold for a couple of weeks and then all of a sudden turned a big, big corner. And as a nurse, I looked at her and said, oh, poor baby's got a sinus infection. We drove up the street to an urgent care clinic. We were in and out in half an hour with, you know, our prescription. And today she's back at school. And um, that is the kind of access that we have. Quick, affordable, easy, effective. No bells and whistles, but everything she needed. Most people don't have that. Right. Yeah. Especially when it comes to reproductive health maternal health and you know it seems that maternal health and reproductive health are um the first sacrificial lambs Mm -hmm. or one of the one of the most visible sacrificial lambs to these healthcare changes that are coming through you know um the current administration um and many members of the gop in congress are going to make it their business to try to defund planned parenthood yeah and you know planned parenthood provides many, many health services for both men and women. Right. And the average um, American probably equates Planned Parenthood with abortion. But no federal funds are used to provide abortion care at a Planned Parenthood in the United States. And also, so isn't that It's only something... a small fraction of yeah. what they do. Yeah, like way less than 10%. I want to say 4%, but don't quote me. I don't know I th- that that's true. I think it's less than 6% for sure. Um, but, you know, Planned Parenthoods provide pap smears and mammograms and contraceptive care and um, STD screening and care for men and... Um, contraceptives for men. And even and some level of just, you know, basic health care, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. For a lot of people, absolutely, the person that they're going to go to to get, you know, their sinus infection taken care of might be Planned Parenthood. Absolutely. Yeah, I know it. That's the 94, the other 94% that of care that they right. provide. And yet we want to slash the knees off of that, all of that. For thousands and thousands and millions of women. Okay, okay, Chris, we can't rant anymore. We can't rant. Okay. Okay, I think we've made our point. Yeah. Well, (laughs) it's a lot. lot. It's a lot. So I wanted to ask you, um, turn the table on you. Yeah. You know, one of the challenges for me um, as a newly um, awakened activist is that I find myself needing to step back and do self-care. Yeah. And I know that you've been doing this for so many, for so long. What do you do for self-care? How do you care for yourself when you feel like everywhere you turn is a dark storm cloud? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's actually one that I've learned, um, you know, kind of on the job. I have, um, you know, a, a lot of 
things that I'm really concerned about. But I've learned over the years to not feel bad about not putting out every fire, not rushing to every crisis, and not making every issue out there mine. I, so I've, I'm more selective now about the advocacy work that I do, knowing that I don't have to do everything. All I have to do is my thing. Mm-hmm. There are other people who will take up everything else and everything, you know, I, I'll do me. So that's part of it. I also, you know, know because I'm a woman of a certain age, as are you, um, and I've had some pretty significant health challenges over the last, you know, 20 years that demand that I take as good a care of myself as I possibly can. And for me, that means protecting my sleep. Um, it means a daily meditation practice that I've had for, you know, a good, maybe going on 10 years now. Um, and really boosting what I do creatively. So I knit like a fiend. I get a lot of exercise, though right now I'm nursing a bum hip because, I don't know, rookie mistake. I really thought that, you know, doing a three-mile run four or five times a week was all the exercise I needed until I, you know, ran the heck out of my hip. And now I'm learning that, oh, no, really, you need strength training. You need cross training. You need to dial it back. So I learned that the hard way. Um, And that's what I do. That's how I do it. So it sounds like you have multiple ways to activate your self-care. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Sometimes it, you know, means that I give myself permission. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a working girl. I am built to work. And I have to tell myself that, no, I'm not slacking off because I want to go do this thing instead of putting in two more hours on the job. Or I'm going to go do this family function instead of putting in more work. No, (laughs) it's not all about work. It's Mm -hmm. about a complete life. It is about a complete life. And it's about trying to find, it's about trying to find balance between work, activism, and self-care. Yeah, at this point. Right. I'm really lucky that for me, work and activism, um, you know, there's a, it's a big crossover for me because that's what I do for a living nowadays. And it's, I'm in a really fortunate position. But the self-care part means that I, you know, protect my family time and I protect my creative time and I read novels and I knit like a fiend and I play with my dog, have, see my friends, hang out with my family all good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Chris, I think that we should probably wrap it up for today, but I know you're going to come back on the pod soon. Anytime you like. So my closing question is always the same. And I know you've already answered it a few times, but let's see how you answer it today. Where are you in your life as a mom? Um, in my life as a mom, Uh, this week I have one child who's sick and I have one child who is, um, uh, sort of negotiating what she is allowed to do. She's Um, 15. She's 14. Uh Uh-huh. 
Uh, she's a freshman in high school, and um, so she's negotiating what what kind of freedoms she's allowed to have at this point in terms of, you know, staying late after school and going to hang out with friends. Um, and, you know, this week she said she she asked me if she could stay after school and go hang out at Burger King with her friends, which is right across from their school. Yeah. And I wasn't completely comfortable with that. Um, I said that I thought if they wanted to come hang out at someone's one of their houses, there were three of them, that that would be a better option. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason I said that to her in this particular instance is that the combination of the three of them is a loud, giggling, kind of crazy ball of 14 and (laughs) 15-year-old girl energy. And I was... I was cringing about what kind of chaos they would create in that environment in that hour or two that they wanted to quote, hang out. And I thought it'd be better contained in our four walls. (laughs) So how much flack did she give you for that? How much pushback? You know, she didn't give me a ton of pushback, truthfully. She said, Oh mom. Yeah. So that, that, you know, she might push harder next year. Oh, for sure. For sure. I I fully expect that and I remember how hard I pushed so yeah. And it's it's also a dance. It's the independence and protection dance. Mhm. Yeah. I know. The first 10 years our job is to protect them from the world. The next 10 it's to send them out and that's the harder I 10. Know. That's the harder 10. I I'm, I'm I'm taking wisdom from all my friends who've gone before me. Yeah, yeah. For sure. All right, lady. It's, it's helpful for me to know that people have made it to the other side. Yep, yep. And actually, I think that the freshman and sophomore years with girls are pretty challenging. They're not bad, but they're just the harder years. And then things get easier in the junior and senior years. And then they go off to college, and then they come back, and you know, you you establish different relationships, and it's good. It's good. But you're in the meat of it good. right now. Sounds sounds. I like, am in the thick of it. Yeah, yeah. This is that year. Yeah. All right, lady, let's wrap it up here and let's talk again soon. Thank you so much, Jeannie. Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days like this, Mama said. Mama said, Mama said. Our guest today was certified nurse midwife Chris Beard, who works with the Kaiser Permanente healthcare system here in Portland, Oregon. Our podcast is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios in Portland, Oregon. Uh, You can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. You can email me, jean at jeanfaulkner. Tweet me at jeanfaulkner. If you want more information about that nurse manifest that we talked about, go to nursemanifest.com forward slash declaration of resistance forward slash and uh, you, you'll uh, get, get all the information you need there thanks for listening everybody thanks for picking up copies of my book at Amazon Barnes and Noble and all the independent bookstores that you shop at um, thanks for subscribing to the podcast and most of all for sharing it with your friends because we're having a great big important conversation about our parenthood and we want to spread the word right thank you and let's talk again next week 
拜拜。